Tonight, if you would, can I direct your attention to John chapter 3? It's a familiar text to you. John chapter 3 will be in three texts tonight. And tonight I want to bring a message called Three Questions, One Answer. Three Questions, One Answer. Three Questions, One Answer. And when you come to John chapter 3, you're, you are immediately brought into acquaintance with a man named Nicodemus. You see it here in chapter 3, verse 1. I was looking and it turns out I preached from John chapter 3 about a year ago. Actually, it was April 21st in 2021 from this pulpit on a Sunday morning. And so some of these things out of John 3 may be familiar to you. We'll not go through the entire passage, but just want to hit some key things. Look at me at John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, where the Bible says this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Everything has a context, doesn't it? I, uh, when I was a boy, I took art classes. I am not an artist, and I found that out quickly. But I took classes in oil painting. And I remember being taught how that you start with the background, the backdrop, and then bring everything forward. And so what you read here is context. Who is this guy, Nicodemus? The Bible says he was a Pharisee. Which means this, he was a man who had great reverence for the law and sought to obey the law. He was a man who walked the walk and didn't just talk the talk. And we know this because he was a ruler of the Jews. He was recognized by his peers. He was made part of a group that would be considered the religious quality control in Jerusalem. And Nicodemus' name, I love the meaning of names, Nicodemus from Nike, the word we get our word Nike from, it means victor. I, I doubt he had a little swoosh on his, on his uh, robe. Uh, I, I doubt when somebody said, I can't obey the law. He just said, just do it. <laughs> but, but, but his name means, uh, first of all, conqueror, victor. And then Demas, the word we get our word demographics from. His parents, his parents named him Conqueror of the people, which is awesome. We met a young man here today uh, from, uh, from uh, Nigeria, I believe it was. And uh, he, he, I believe his name was Doya, D-O-Y-A, Doya. I said, what does that mean? And he told me that it meant something like a wealthy uh, gift or something like that. And, and it was very appropriate that his parents, when they held him in their arms, gave him this name that would hopefully be prophetic of his future life. Well, here's Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Again, he walks the walk. He doesn't just talk the talk. And the Bible says this same came to Jesus by night in verse 2. This same came to Jesus by night. I know there have been a lot of commentators that have suggested maybe Nicodemus did this to hide his actions. But I wonder if Nicodemus didn't do this so he could have a protracted conversation with Jesus without interruptions and without the crowds. And so he comes to Jesus by night. And I love the pronouns that he uses. Follow along here, verse 2. Rabbi, we know, we know, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Did you notice he said, we know. And old Nicodemus, Nicodemus has been having some conversations with some people. And it forces him to, to get out of his house at night. Uh, some night, and, and he makes his way down the dusty backwoods of Jerusalem to go to the place where he hears Jesus and his disciples are staying. And he comes to Jesus not uh, as a hostile, but as a friendly, because the words he uses are words of tremendous respect. 
He says, we know. Some of us have been talking. Here's the conclusion we've come to about who you are. We know, he calls him rabbi, which is a term of respect for a teacher. We know that thou art a man come from God. For, that, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. We know your miracle, or excuse me, we know your ministry is from God because you do miracles that demonstrate God's stamp of approval all over your ministry. So he makes it clear, I'm not coming here to trap you with words. I'm not coming here to trick you. I'm not coming here to accuse you. But you know, old Jesus, our wonderful Savior, our wonderful Savior looks past all those nice words that Nicodemus says and looks right into the heart of Nicodemus. And that brings us to the first point tonight, an unvoiced question. An unvoiced question. You know, last year I had the opportunity, in fact, I've had the opportunity the past few years to be in a particular town that is a hotbed for a particular sect. Some would call it a cult. And, and I remember on the closing night of our time there with this particular uh, church that preaches the gospel in this hotbed of cultism, I remember being impressed by the fact that many seemed to come to that closing night after their children had been involved in sports camp and hearing the gospel all week long. I just got the sense that there were people there who were steeped in their religiousness, steeped in their righteousness, but who had a sense like Nicodemus had. There's got to be something more. And we call Nicodemus a righteous man, not, not, not in the sense that he was righteous as far as God's standards were concerned. None of us are righteous according to God's standards, but righteous according to man's standards. When people looked at Nicodemus, they saw an example of a man that lived right. But inside Nicodemus's heart was a gnawing question, a, a, a gnawing lack of assurance. And Jesus doesn't even recognize the things Jesus, that Nicodemus said. He doesn't even address those things. Instead, he goes right to the need. I love that. The Savior's gaze goes past Nicodemus's words and right past Nicodemus's countenance and to Nicodemus's heart. And Jesus gives Nicodemus an answer to the question Nicodemus has not voiced. But it's got to be the question on his heart because Jesus never wasted a word. He never wasted the truth. And notice what the Bible says after Nicodemus says these things. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we've got a couple of things that are very clear here. Number one, Nicodemus's righteousness does not fit him to see the kingdom of God. Another thing that we see then is also Nicodemus's righteousness does not make him born again. And Jesus explains it so clearly to Nicodemus how a man can be prepared to see the kingdom of heaven. As he moves through this, Jesus talks about the born-again experience. He talks about the mystery of it. But I want you to look even further down to verse 14, 15, and 16. John chapter 3, verse 14, where the Bible says, Jesus speaking, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Now Jesus is going to let Nicodemus know that he is more, that Jesus is more than a rabbi, more than a good teacher, more than a teacher with God's stamp of approval all over his ministry. Jesus is going to let Nicodemus know that Jesus is none other than the Son of God. Verse 16, for, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Hey, to Nicodemus's unvoiced question, there is this answer. The unvoiced question, what must I do to see heaven? What must I do to prepare for the kingdom of God? What must I do to be assured of being in the kingdom of God after this life? There's just got to be something more. And Jesus lets Nicodemus know, here's the answer. Here's the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to an unusual question. An unusual question. Look over with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, we interrupt a man's journey as he's making his way from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. The man is a eunuch, and he has a very high position. He is a treasurer for Queen Candace of Ethiopia. He has gone to, wor- to Jerusalem to worship. The Bible makes that very clear. He's gone to Jerusalem to worship. He is, he is in all likelihood of Hebrew descent. He is in all likelihood a Jew. And so he's gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he's on his way back, and he's reading a scroll. Because, you know, in Bible days, there weren't chapter divisions and verse divisions like we enjoy now, but there was instead a scroll. And this Ethiopian, this treasurer, traveling, no doubt, with an entourage, a man of that great importance, he's opened the scroll, he has it on his lap, and he's reading it meticulously. And then Philip, one of the disciples, one of the apostles of the Lord, is told by the Spirit of God to go join himself to this Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip goes to him, he hears what he's reading, and he says, Understandest thou what thou readest? And the Ethiopian said, How could I understand except some men should guide me? And so then Philip goes up into that chariot. Look here in verse 30 of Acts chapter 8. Verse 30, Acts chapter 8. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I understand? Or how can I? Except some man should guide me. And he desired Philip. That is, he asked Philip. He desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer. So opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Now here's what we find. When we come to Nicodemus, every time Nicodemus opened up the law, every time Nicodemus recited the scriptures that he memorized, every time Nicodemus applied applied the law to his life, there was a conviction. I just don't measure up. There was a conviction. There's got to be something more. When Nicodemus would, con- would compare his actions to what the law said, he knew there was a heart problem. And this reproof drew- drove him to this questioning. And so he comes to Jesus by night, and Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, 
Your unvoiced question, here's the answer. Here's how you see the kingdom of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord speaks of Christ's authority, doesn't it? Speaks of the fact that he is master, that he is sovereign, he's in control. Jesus speaks of his earthly name, his earthly ministry, speaks of him in flesh and blood. Christ speaks of his role in being the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jesus bringing the Messiah, setting the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. And so when when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, those things are all components of that, all in one phrase. And so, oh, Philip, he comes to this eunuch. This eunuch is being reproved by the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. And what does Philip do? He explains to him Isaiah 53. Don't you love that? Here in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And so we find, what does Isaiah 53 say about Jesus? It says, he was bruised. He was bruised for our iniquity. He was wounded for our transgression. And so the idea of personal iniquity, personal transgression comes to bear on the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, he's just been to Jerusalem. No doubt there's gospel murmurs uh, in Jerusalem. And this also must be ringing in his ears and, and, and somehow ruminating in his heart. And as they go along, the Ethiopian eunuch sees water. And you see it here in verse 36. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? That's an unusual question. Nicodemus had the unvoiced question. The Ethiopian has the unusual question. Here's water. What's standing in the way of me being baptized? What hindereth me from being baptized? Well, old Philip, he knows the gospel. He knows the Great Commission. Philip heard it from the lips of Jesus, and Philip knows there's a right order to things. No matter what a person feels, no matter what a tradition says, there's a right biblical order to things. And Philip knows that order. And being an apostle, a sent forth one, he is going to be sure to follow the Lord's order. And notice what the order of events is. Here's what he says in verse 37. And Philip said, If thou... What's the next word? Believest. Ah, belief. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he believed. And then they stopped the chariot and immediately Philip baptizes him. There are great clues in here as to the nature of baptism. Philip didn't say, get me your canteen or get me the wineskin filled with water. Let's go ahead. No, they went into the water together and Philip baptized him. But there was an order. Always before baptism is belief. Always before baptism is belief. And so again, the unvoiced question of Nicodemus, the righteous man. Oh, how can I be sure of seeing the kingdom of heaven? Well, Nicodemus, it doesn't rest on your works. It doesn't rest on your righteousness. It hinges on this. What will you do with Jesus? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He, uh, according to John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you'll see that echoed again throughout the gospel of John chapter 3. John the Baptist picks up that message and proclaims it even more so uh, before the chapter's over. 
We come to the unusual question. Hey, there's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? I remember when we were in Moreno Valley, we didn't have a baptistry. We were uh, in a rented facility. Uh, we Actually, we were in a fitness studio. When we first started there, we were in a fitness studio, which was awesome because it was surrounded with mirrors. And so, and so it looked like there were twice as many people there. Uh, and uh, so we, we didn't count all the reflections, though. Uh, but the only drawback was is that I also had to watch myself preach uh, in the mirror. That was not pretty at all. But I remember we, were gonna, we had people saved. God was so good. We had some folks lined up for baptism, seven folks lined up for baptism. We didn't have a baptistry, so we went to Paris Lake, Lake Paris. Not an ideal place for baptisms, but Lake Paris. It kind of goes through phases. It goes through phases. So uh, we just told folks, keep your mouth closed. <laughs> okay, so, so we go to Lake Paris, and we're doing some baptizing. And pretty soon, and I think I told you this before, pretty soon, a bunch of lifeguards came around and, and a lifeguard boat and, and, uh, and I mean, uh, probably 15, 15 people in their lifeguard uniforms and all that came and they got everybody out of the water, everybody out of the water. We had just baptized a couple people and I heard the siren and I, and I saw the people rushing to our area and I thought, we're not doing anything illegal. This is going to be interesting, but we're not doing anything illegal. But they told us to get out of the water because there was uh, this uh, frightful situation of a two-year-old child that could not be found. And they thought the last time they saw that two-year-old child was right in the water, right about where we were. And so they were joining hands and, and being a, about a, a, a two-arm length apart. They weren't joining hands, but they went down, came up, went down, feeling along, came up, went down, feeling along. And uh, uh, fortunately, and we praise the Lord, the child was found safe several yards down the beach, uh, walking along the shore there. And, uh, and, and that was good. But, you know, that kind of thing draws a crowd. So what do we do? We started baptizing again. We had already baptized too, had five more to go. And so we had the opportunity to give public testimony of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I remember when we were done, there were folks that said, hey, I want to be baptized. Well, I'd never met them before, but I remembered the Bible order. Hey, before you get baptized, there's something you got to do. You got to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so what a great opportunity that was. But there was the unusual question. What's keeping me? What's hindering me? What doth hinder me to be baptized? Except thou believest thou mayest. Oh, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, right. They stopped the chariot and Philip baptized him. So you have the unvoiced question of a righteous man. You have the unusual question of a religious man. And then you've got the unfiltered question of a rotten man. Turn with me over to the book of Acts chapter 16. Over to the book of Acts. Now, truth be told, we know that according to Romans chapter 3, that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our own righteousness or our own religiousness, but he sees us as rotten through and through. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The Bible makes it very clear that our throats are as an open sepulcher. The indictment is that no man seeks after the Lord. Uh, we are as far from God as, as far can be. That doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be. It just means we're as bad off as we could be. There are times when, no, when, when men do noble things. There are times when men do heroic things. May I suggest to you that may be an evidence of, of the fact that we are made in the image of God. But those things do not make us saved, nor do they reveal us to be saved. But, in, but the heart is still deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It needs to be changed, just as our pastor told us this morning from the Word of God. Our heart needs to be changed. Well, in Acts chapter 16, we come to the beginning of the church in Philippi. 
You know, a devout uh, Jewish person, a Jewish male, when he would pray, we are told by tradition he would pray, I thank thee, God, or thank thee, Lord. He wouldn't say God, but I thank thee, Lord, that I am not, that I was not born a woman, a slave, and there was one other thing, or a Gentile, a woman, slave, or Gentile. And in Acts chapter 16, the first person that gets saved in Philippi is a woman, a businesswoman, a godly businesswoman. And, and, and then the second person that gets saved is a slave girl. And then the third person that gets saved is this Gentile, this Gentile sinner, sinner as renowned, sinner as, as having a reputation for having missed the mark. Uh, and this Philippian jailer was calloused. This Philippian jailer uh, was totally unsympathetic to the prisoners in his prison. And we find that when this slave girl gets saved, it's the result of her being delivered from demonic possession. Under the influence of demons, she brought those who employed her great gain. But once she was saved and Jesus was the Lord of her life, why, a new owner moved into her life, a new manager was there, and her employers began to lose money. And so they were irate, and they accused Paul and Silas of disturbing the peace. And so they are taken and they are beaten with rods. And then the jailer is told, keep them fast. And so the jailer throws them into the innermost chamber of the prison. And he puts their feet in stocks. And we see that here in the Bible. We see that here in verse, in uh, beginning of verse 23. And when the, and this is Acts 16, verse 23. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into the, into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. He didn't care that they were beaten. He didn't care that they were bloodied. He did not care that they were dehydrated. He did not care if infection set in. He roughly cast them into the innermost part of the prison and put their feet in stocks. And what did Paul and Silas do? Well, they weren't singing something good is going to happen to you today. They didn't gripe either. They didn't complain. They didn't murmur. They didn't say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. We're your children. I wouldn't treat any of my children this way. They didn't gripe or complain. They didn't worry. They weren't filled with anxiety. The Bible tells us what they did. Look here at verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. How could they do that? The same way you and I can in the darkest of times. The same way you and I can in the most difficult of times. Paul and Silas had an inner reality that exceeded their exterior circumstances. They had an inner reality, which was a relationship with Almighty God. And that relationship exceeded their outward, uncomfortable, unbearable circumstances. And as they sang and as they prayed, notice what the rest of that verse says in verse, uh, verse 25, and the prisoners heard them. Well, they were used to hearing cursing and murmuring and blaspheming, complaining. And here they're hearing something different. Is that singing coming from the innermost chamber? 
These men are praying and praising God. Why? Do you not think that the gospel came through in this? Do you not think that, that the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection came through in this? That God's power, God's gospel, God's redeeming power was not somehow communicated through the singing and through the praying? Well, you and I, we know what it is to live in earthquake country. Amen. Everywhere we go, people wonder, how could you live in California with the earthquakes and the political climate? (laughs) Well, God gives grace, and there are lots of people in California that need the Lord. Well, should we all just move out of California and, and not have a gospel witness or a gospel testimony? Praise God for the local church where we could escape that climate at least for a bit each week and many times during the week. But we know what earthquakes are. And sometimes, sometimes the earthquakes, you know they're coming. The lights flicker. I remember back in 80, excuse me, back in 92. Now, I was not in Yucca Valley during 92, during the big Landers earthquake of 92. I was in Moreno Valley. But I remember watching the lights in the house flicker and, and saying, there must be a disturbance in the power grid. I wonder if it's an earthquake. And an earthquake came rolling through. I could have been like so prophetic and really impressed people, but I, I didn't. But it comes that way. You hear it on the horizon, then it rolls through, and you hear it as it rolls away. It, sound, it does. It sounds like a freight train. Before freight trains, I said, you know, that sounds like an earthquake. But you can hear it. But sometimes you don't hear it coming. It's just a jarring, just a sharp jarring. And you say, boy, I'm glad that's over. A sharp jarring. That's what happened here, is it not? Notice here in verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. Suddenly, a great earthquake. Didn't hear it coming? Just a jolt. In fact, this jolt is so big that it jars the mechanisms and the locks. It jars the doors on their hinges. Notice what the Bible says. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. And everyone's bands were loosed. That's a miraculous earthquake. Do you remember in the book of Acts when the people of God were praying one night? They were praying through the night and an earthquake came. The Bible says the place was shaken where they were gathered together. I remember we were having an all-night prayer meeting one Labor Day weekend. One Labor Day weekend, Sunday through Monday, we were praying. And as we were praying, there was an earthquake. It was so awesome. (laughs) It was so cool. Anyway. And it was one of those rumbling kind, not sharp, but one of those, anyway, that was so cool. And we all looked up, and nobody had their eyes closed. We all looked up to see what was going on. What do we do now? Probably keep on praying, and we did. So, everyone's bands are loosed. The doors are off the hinges. The keeper of the prison, who, according to Kent Hughes, who has studied these things and knows something of Bible history, He reports that this keeper of the prison would have been a contractor. He would have purchased a contract to maintain the prison, to be the warden of the prison. And the code of the day said that if a prisoner escaped, his life was on the line. So he assumes that the prisoners would do what he would do if he were a prisoner in his prison. Why, if he had the opportunity to escape as a prisoner, he would seize it immediately. And so rather than have Rome take his life, He goes to take his own life. And Paul, 
with great mercy and with great urgency, cries out to this man who had them thrust in the innermost prison, who had their feet put in stocks, who robbed them of any opportunity of comfort, who robbed them of any opportunity of cleansing. Paul could have sat back and said, well, he's going to get what he deserves. But he doesn't do that. He cries out to him, as you see here in the, in the Bible in verse 27, and the keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Incredulous. Incredulous, the jailer calls for a torch. Bring me some light. I need to see this for myself. And so a torch is brought, and he holds it out. He looks in the first cell, and there are beady eyes looking back at him. I assume they had beady eyes. I don't know if you know prisoners had beady eyes. But he looks, and he sees the reflection. There they are. Their mouths are open. Their eyes are open, and they're not moving. He goes to the next cell. They're in their cell as well. Goes to the next cell. They're in their cell as well. And it dawns on this man, this jailer. He knows, he must have known something of the reputation of Paul and Silas. He must have known something of their message. Listen, I, I know that, that uh, we come to the jailer after conversations he's had his, at home. We're not privy to the conversations at home. But I believe there's got to have been something going on because Paul addresses the jailer and the condition of the jailer's family the condition of the jailer's household. Had there been discussions about the Roman gods and goddesses? Had there been discussion about Caesar as as a deity? Had there been a discussion about how worthless and senseless life seemed to be? And this man, about ready to go into eternity, he's halted by Paul's words. He sees the truth of what Paul says. And then it dawns on him how close he was to eternity. And with fear and with trembling, reproved, no doubt, by the gospel that Paul and Silas preached, he comes to Paul and Silas with an unfiltered question. We had the unvoiced question from the righteous one, Nicodemus. The unusual question from the religious eunuch. And now the unfiltered question from the rotten jailer. Notice what the Bible says here in verse thirty. One, excuse me, verse 30. The Bible says, and brought them out. Ah, we're going to go back even further. Let's go to verse 28. Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light, verse 29 says, and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What hope is there for me? What hope is there for me? I was about to take my life. You see how I, how I treat human beings? You see how I've treated you? Man, what hope do I have? An unfiltered question that gets an unfiltered answer. Verse 30, uh, 33. No, excuse me. I'm going to get this. Verse 31. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved and thy house. Can you look at verse 34? And when they had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. You know what that tells me? The people who were old enough to understand 
believed in God as well, and salvation came to that household, came to those individuals. There was obviously evidence there had been a change in this jailer's heart. There was evidence as he put uh, food before Paul and Silas, as he allowed Paul and Silas to speak to his household, as he had those wounds cleansed on Paul and Silas, obviously there had been a conversion there. The heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh. The unfiltered question. I don't know why it is in these days when we've had the gospel for so long that we just feel compelled sometimes to muddy the waters and make it so unclear. Charles Spurgeon was preaching on the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. Why on, three, on, on one side of Jordan, on the west side of Jordan, there were to be three cities called cities of refuge. On the east side of Jordan, three cities called cities of refuge. Those cities of refuge had a specific purpose. There were times in the course of living life that somebody's life might accidentally be taken. It was not malicious. It was not premeditated. But because of the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, if somebody lost their life due to a farming incident or some, somebody's uh, a donkey just got spooked and ran somebody over, again, it wasn't malicious, it wasn't premeditated, it wasn't by intent. Well, the family could take the life of the one that owned the donkey. The family could take the life of the one who accidentally killed somebody else. But there was a refuge. There were these six cities that a man could go to, and there at the gate he could plead his case, and the elders would admit him into the city of refuge, and he'd be untouchable in there. He'd be untouchable as long as the high priest lived. He'd be untouchable. Spurgeon mentioned the fact that in the Old Testament law, that the cities of refuge had to have the way cleared of debris. It was mandated that the ways to the cities of refuge be cleared of debris. The way could not be obscured at all. There had to be signposts or signs pointing people to where the city was so that in the pressure of escaping for one's life, there would be no doubt as to where to go. And we find in that also our wonderful Savior. As that jailer is pressured, pressured knowing he's not right with God and, and it's in the midst of a crisis, he's, he's, he just wonders, where is the refuge in a sense? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rescued? What must I do to be delivered? And Paul and Silas make the way clear. They don't tell him you've got to go to some classes. They don't tell him, we're going to see if you're sincere. Uh, they don't tell him, you've got to be baptized. They don't tell him you, that uh, you've you got to go to a seminar. They don't tell him, you've got to clean up your act. They don't tell him any of those things. They tell him the truth. And an unfiltered question that says, what must I do to be saved, gets the unfiltered answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And not just you, but as your household believes, you could be saved as well. An unvoiced question from a righteous man, as human beings go, not righteous in the sight of God, but righteous, respectable in the sight of people. An unvoiced question. How can I know for sure that I'm going to go to, the, get to see the kingdom of heaven? And then the unusual question, what does hinder me to be baptized? Oh, unless you believe, then you can, is that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Sirs, 
What must I do to be saved? I am rotten to the core. You see how I've treated you. What hope do I have? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You may be familiar with this. This has been trending for a little while, but I thought it a fitting closing for these truths tonight. A fellow got to thinking about thief on the cross theology. And he said this, I've often wondered how the thief on the cross fit into mainline theology. The odds certainly would have been stacked against him, the thief on the cross. No baptism, no commitment, no communion, no speaking in tongues, no confirmation, no missions trip, no volunteerism, no church clothes. He could not even bend his knees to pray. He did not say the sinner's prayer. And among other things, he was a thief. Jesus didn't take away his pain, heal his body. He didn't smite the scoffers. He didn't take away any fear that the man had of dying. Yet, it was a thief that walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus, simply by believing. There was nothing more to offer other than the belief that this Jesus was who he said he was. And I'll pause there for a moment before finishing this, but this is exactly on the mark. As the thieves on either side of Jesus, suspended also between heaven and earth, one mocked and the other believed. He knew that he was there, rightly so. He deserved what he was getting for his crimes. The other wanted to escape the punishment. But the one thief that said, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom, that's his statement of faith. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I know who you really are. You are Christ the King. I know who you really are. Somehow he had enough exposure to the Old Testament that he knew that this was the Christ. This was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And he believed on him. And he made it clear, this man is innocent. We are here because we deserve to be. This man is innocent. He knew that Jesus was sinless and he knew that he was the Christ. And so he makes that plea. Remember me when thou enterest into thy kingdom. And Jesus says, in response to his belief, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. It was a thief that walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus simply by believing. There was nothing more to offer other than the belief that Jesus was who he said he was. In the middle of the intense drama, he looked over at his Savior and in so many words simply said, I believe. Is that not the purest form of the gospel? No spin from a brilliant theologian, no ego, arrogance, or skinny jeans, no haze or donuts or sacraments or catechism, Nothing but a naked, dying man who couldn't even fold his hands to pray. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. To the unvoiced question, Nicodemus, you feel like there's got to be something more. You feel unprepared to see the kingdom of God. It compels you to get out of your house and seek out Jesus. Jesus has the answer to your question. Believe. And it's not just believe. It's the object of belief, too. You and I understand that. The object of belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not belief for belief's sake. It's believing on the one who died, was buried, and rose again. To the, to the Ethiopian eunuch, that unusual question. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip has one answer. Believe to the jailer who lays on the ground before Paul and Silas and in desperation as though to say, I'm not letting you go till you give me an answer. What must I do to be saved? And what do they say? Believe. That's the message the world around us needs. That's the message we need to take to them. I know there are all kinds of other wonderful things, glorious things in the Word of God. But that's just the basic one. Let's pray that God brings us across the paths of people who sense their desperation, who sense there's got to be something more, who sense that desperation. I'm a few heartbeats from eternity. And the Lord can use all sorts of things. Maybe somebody's at about the age that their parents were, one of their parents were, when their parent went into eternity. And now eternity looms closer. Desperation. What must I do to be saved? And may we make the way to the one who is the city of refuge, may we make it clear. May we make it clear and obvious and not obscured at all. Run to him.